Well, it's good to be here again. Please join me in a word of supplication. Our Father, you invite us, you call us to worship you, to come to you, and you tell us that your arms are open to us and your ears are open. And so we thank you for that because we know just what we are as we come. And so bless us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to talk about worship. Um, The last years I have found myself wanting more out of the Sunday morning service. And so I had a time of asking myself this question, how do I actually worship God? And the answer I've come to is less about what is proper to do in a church service and more about what is in my heart as I participate in what is proper to do in a church service. In Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, we read this. And then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, what in the world is Matthew telling us that those eleven men did with him on the mountain that day? Now, one way we tend to answer that question in our day is to say that music is worship. And that statement strongly connects with the current of thought in popular church culture that says that worship is a feeling, a positive, affirming, and warm, and non-judgmental emotional experience that is evoked by music the music leading the worshiper into the presence of God. This means that worship is not something we do, but something we experience, a feeling within us. So that day on the mountain, were those 11 men singing worship songs with Jesus? Was there a worship band playing just over the hill, creating an atmosphere of worship? that led them into his presence? Were they experiencing a warm and positive and affirming emotional experience within themselves? And were those who doubted just not getting the feeling? Were they just not grooving with the music? Now, by asking these questions, I'm not suggesting that worship is cold and heartless and without feeling. Not at all. Certainly... Singing and music can express worship. Certain, certainly real worship is accompanied by feelings and emotions. It just can't help but be. But is worship a feeling? Another way we tend to answer the question, how do I worship God, is to say that worship is the performance of Religious ceremonies and rituals and activities, especially on Sunday. And once those required activities have been properly performed, we have worshipped. And that's that. And now we can go home for pot roast uh, with potatoes and gravy. And in my house, that means lots of gravy. And that kind of sounds like that's part of worship to me. But 
um, so were, what were those 11 men doing on the mountain with Jesus that day? Did he lead them through a liturgy made up of certain required elements? And were those who doubted skeptical because maybe he left out one of those required elements? Now, it might sound here like I'm suggesting that worship has nothing to do with religious uh, ceremonies and rituals and activities. Not at all. Certainly, worship can arise from and be expressed through all the means of grace in the church service. But can worship itself really be reduced to the performance of religious rituals, ceremonies, and activities? So what does Matthew mean by telling us that those 11 men worshiped Jesus Christ on the mountain that day? Well, the first clue is in the simple grammar of the phrase, they worshiped him. Notice that the word worship is the verb in that short sentence, that short phrase, they worshiped him. You know, a verb expresses the action performed by the subject of the sentence. So this means that the subject of the sentence, the disciples, performed the action of the verb worshipped, and the object of the verb, Jesus Christ, received the action of that verb. This means that worship was an action the disciples performed toward Jesus Christ not an emotional experience within them. The next clue comes from the dictionary, where both the Hebrew and the Greek meaning of the verb worship refer to an act that expresses respect from one person to another person, and that respect is conveyed through a posture of the body. So when two people of equal rank met, they both would offer each other a slight bow and maybe a mutual kind of loose hug and touch on the cheek. And that conveyed respect, but not submission. And when one of those persons was a lower rank, that person bowed more deeply, which conveyed respect and a deference to the person of higher rank. But when you move into the category of a subject coming before his king, well, Something is different here because the subject would bow down to the ground, either on his knees with his face bowed to the ground or on his face flat on the ground. And that, that this action, this posture of the body conveyed a meaning to the, to the king, which uh, is uh, of high, a high respect, allegiance, and submission. So basically bowing in front of the king in this way, told the king something like this. My king, in respect of who you are, I proclaim that you are my authority. I submit to you, and I will obey you. You are my authority. I submit to you, and I obey you. That's the raw meaning of the verb worship. A posture of the body that conveys respect and a statement of personal submission because we are in no way equal with God. And we're not just of lower rank than God. We are a subject coming before our king. 
Now here is just a small sample of the many scripture passages that communicate this idea. Genesis 24, 26, then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. Exodus 4, 31, so the people believed and they heard that the Lord cared about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, so they bowed low and worshiped. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 3, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord. Job 1, verse 20, and then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Matthew 2, verse 11, And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they, the wise men, fell to the ground and worshipped him. Acts 10, verse 25, And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In Revelation 5, verse 14, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And finally, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is authority to the glory of God the Father. That's just a small sample of the many verses that convey this. Personal submission sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Is that really what believers are called to do? Well, that's the meaning of the word. <laughs> and, of course, in that day, if you didn't bow down and worship your king and submit to him and pay your taxes, there would be consequences. So it might seem harsh to combine submission with the joy and the praise of Christian worship, but how can we do anything less than submit to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Actually, a wholehearted submission to Christ is the very wellspring of the joy and the hope in our worship. So the picture in our mind's eye of what took place on the mountain that day should be of 11 men bowing low on their knees, maybe even prostrate on the ground in front of the resurrected Christ, confessing that he was God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, their Savior, and their Lord, their authority. And as they were bowed there before him, what did he do? He asserted authority over them by giving them a command one that we are all very familiar with. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And you see, they were bowed there in front of him in this posture of worship as they heard this command. And then when those 11 men stood up, they validated their worship when they went out and obeyed him by engaging in the task of making disciples of the nation. Had they not obeyed their outward posture of worship, their bowing down in front of him would have been shown to be a lie. And this shows us that there is both an outward and an inward aspect to the worship of submission. And of course, the outward is seen when the body is bowed down or prostrate on the ground or in the eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper or in the activities of baptism when we're not flat on our face necessarily. And then the inward aspect is made visible when we actually obey all the things that the Savior has commanded in our daily living and in the life and practice of the church. We really can't say that we worship him if we don't obey him. So let's examine and handle this just a little bit. First of all, I'm convinced that this submission is that something more that I need in order to get more out of a church service. And this is something I have to go back to often. So instead of relying on the preacher or the music or the ceremonies or the liturgy to move me or to move my emotions so that I go away with a good feeling, I need to hear the word of God and then embrace that word and submit to it in thankfulness. All the preacher can do is lead is, is uh, pre- bring the word of God to me. It, all he can do is really kind of lead me to the water, so to speak. But I have to drink. I have to embrace this word and submit myself to it. Secondly, music is certainly one way that we can express real worship. And thank God for the gift of music and the talent that he has given some to combine music with lyrics in such a way that we're moved in our hearts as we sing praise to our great God and King. But again, music is not worship, but music can express the heart's response of submission to Christ. Third, emotions, even intense emotions, Emotions of all kinds will certainly arise around and through and within this worship of submission. Because the gospel encompasses conviction and confession of sin. And and also um, the, the, the joy of forgiveness of sin and the comfort of the grace of God and the peace that we have in our saving faith. So real worship will be accompanied by the whole range of human emotion, from the negative to the positive and everything in between. Fourth, if if we don't somehow feel the presence of God, does that mean that he's not with us? 
No, not at all. If we don't feel intense, positive emotions, does that mean that we're not worshiping? No, it doesn't. Emotion is just emotion, and emotions come and go, as you've probably noticed, while God remains faithful. So emotions are not a reliable indicator of God's presence or his blessing. Whatever emotion we're feeling, Jesus Christ calls us to worship him through submitting to him, which includes trusting in him. Therefore, worship is God-focused and not self-focused. Fifth, how do religious rituals and ceremonies and liturgy then fit into this worship that is founded in submission? Well, God commands his people to perform what can only be described as religious rituals and ceremonies under both Old and New Covenants as part of public worship together. He commands this, and so we ought to, we must perform them. He expects New Covenant believers to gather weekly and to be led to worship him through the rituals and the ceremonies and the activities of the church in its worship service, especially in the reading and the preaching of the word. And so whether we feel like it or not, whether every sermon lights up the sky for us or not, we are being steadily washed by the water of the word over time. And as we submit to Christ in and through those liturgical activities, through the means of grace, we are led, even small step by small step, to repentance and faith, to sanctification, to greater maturity, to increased knowledge, and to a deeper submission. I thank God for the good effect that the liturgy of the church has had upon me. But we can very easily perform God-commanded religious rituals and activities and not submit to Christ at all, which means although we, uh, we have gone through the outward form of worship, we haven't actually worshiped him. Let's uh, now look at some warnings about submission in worship. Psalm 95 provides a very helpful warning about emotional responses without submission. So the first seven verses of Psalm 95 read like this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And then the first half of verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. These are good words. These are worship words. 
And they correspond with real worship. They communicate the posture of worship. They express truth and reality. They exalt God and they express submission. They express this an emotion of great joy. So this is like a snapshot of worshipers responding in joyful submission to their Lord and Savior. They're praising him. We can enter into these words. But the point of the psalm has not been made yet. And these expressions of worship are not the point of the psalm. The focus of the psalm is in the middle of verse 7, where the tone of the psalm entirely changes. So verses 7 and 8 read like this. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. It's as if I'm in the middle of worshiping God. I'm bowing down and I'm kneeling before him and I'm praising him with joy and he taps me on the shoulder. Or maybe he dumps a bucket of cold water on me. To get my attention, he has something important to say to me, right to me. He has a message that I need to hear today, right now. And the point of the psalm The focus of this interruption of the worshiper is not on the content of the message. The focus is on the reaction of the worshiper to that message. Today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your heart. So to harden the heart when he speaks would be to stop worshiping, to stop submitting. It's like saying no. So this kind of divine interruption might come to us in our private worship time. Have you ever experienced that? It might come to us in our family worship. It might come to us here in what is rightly called the worship service of the church. And the question is this, will we submit to what he has to say, whatever it is? So if God convicts us of sin, we will feel judged. And no doubt we'll experience emotions like sorrow and guilt and shame. And we might feel like going to hide in a hole in the ground and pulling the dirt in on top of us. But worship is submission, even through emotional turmoil. So to worship then in this moment of conviction is to bow in repentance and faith, saying something like this maybe, yes, Lord. You are right about me, even though I'm having a hard time with what you just said. But you are my authority, you are my savior, and I submit to you, I will obey you. And in spite of how I feel, I repent, and I trust in your covenant promise to save wretched sinners like me. I hope in the word that you have sent to me today. But if we think that worship is always positive and affirming, warm emotions without any judgment, we're in trouble. We are going to miss out on the gospel blessing of sanctification and continue to struggle in hardness and inner conflict until we repent.
here's a real life scenario. <laughs> Something to consider. So here I am worshiping God. I bowed down and kneeling before him in heart, sitting in a pew, listening to a sermon, and he taps me on the shoulder to get my attention. He has something important to say right to me today that I need to hear. And at that moment, right then, there's another insistent voice that pipes up and says something like this. Hey, I want a cup of coffee. Actually, I need a cup of coffee right now. Get up and get it. Get it for me, please. And I get up and go. And, and the pastor doesn't stop and wait for me to come back. And I miss out on what God had for me on that particular day in that moment. So who am I worshiping then? As Paul puts it, I am worshiping my belly. I'm submitting to my bodily appetites and urges. Obviously, there's times to get up and go out. But why? Christ calls me to deny myself, to take up my cross and follow him. And when my belly gets in the way of God's voice, and, or leads me off into sin, my belly must be resisted and denied. Man does not live by bread alone, doesn't live by coffee alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Amos gives another kind of helpful warning about performing religious ceremonies and activities without submission to God. Real worship must have integrity, meaning... Worship must be from the entire man, both the inward and the outward, not just an outward posture. The inward spirit must bow as well. And it's fake worship to honor God with our lips, but not to submit to him in our hearts. So we can't say that performing religious activities on Sunday morning is worship at all unless there is submission to God in the heart that results from and validates those activities and ceremonies and rituals. Now we get a shocking view of this problem in Amos 5, verses 21 to 26, where God's message to Israel included these words. This is the Lord speaking. I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies, and though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed in instruments. But instead, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me? Sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikketh, your king, and Chayun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. So imagine this, the, the, the worship rituals, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the feast days, commanded by God, are being performed, but God will not accept them. In fact, he says he hates this empty shell of fake worship because, as Amos pointed out elsewhere in his prophecy, the, the hearts of those people were full of injustice, oppression, immorality, hatred, theft, lying, and covetousness. Their hearts were full of that as 
they were performing the very worship rituals, sacrifices, and ceremonies and feasts commanded by God. Their lack of submission to God's moral law invalidated their obedience to his ceremonial law. Amos identified the problem, didn't he? He said that they were idol worshipers. And actually, if you read all that he said, he said they'd never given it up from the time of the Exodus up until that day. Never. And it actually reaches back farther than that. And that's, this is the very thing that Stephen pointed out to the Jewish council in Acts 7, where he, that made them so furious at him. He exposed their worship of idols using these very same words from Amos. Now, it would be easy for us to think that idolatry would not be a problem for us. After all, who would bow down to a block of carved wood? Stupid. Yeah. But the block of wood is just the visible evidence of a much larger problem, which is the refusal of the human heart to submit to the lordship and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in that refusal to erect a substitute savior, a substitute God, whether a block of wood or an idea of their imagination, anything that won't require submission and righteousness from us, and this is a common theme, Old Testament and New. Consider this. As part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to remove all leaven from their homes. And tradition tells us that uh, the Jewish families would take a candle and go throughout their home, looking into every nook and cranny, Eat, to, to search out even bread crumbs eat from unleavened bread, get them out of their house. Now think of such a family with their candle and they're searching through their home and they look into this little secret recess where they have their little idol of Moloch, the sun god who demands human sacrifice. There, there it is. And they're looking for crumbs around it and they move on and go about their business. Well, they've missed the very leaven that they were intended to find in that search, a deadly leaven. And there's a corresponding New Testament counterpart to the removal of leaven in the examination of the heart before taking the Lord's Supper. Paul calls us to examine ourselves beforehand. And so, as the light of Christ is shining into our home and into our heart, we have to ask ourselves, What's hidden in my home? What's hidden in my heart? Even as I'm sitting here in the meeting of the church, even as I take the Lord's Supper, what idols are hidden there that I'm submitting to? Does immorality or injustice or rebellion dominate my heart even as I appear outwardly to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I worship and bow down to my belly? Now, as New Testament believers, we are not free from God's condemnation of secret idolatry. It could be that in our day, our lack of submission might bring a message to God from us very much like what Amos spoke, where God refuses to accept our public worship 
services, our ceremonies and our activities, our music and our musical instruments, our giving and our, even our fellowship meals. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read that some rich members in that church, in the context of this religious ceremony of the Lord's Supper, were despising and therefore mistreating the poor in the church. Failing to recognize that these poor people were full members of the body of Christ. The rich were behaving just like the goats that Jesus sent away into everlasting punishment in that parable in Matthew 25. That's almost frightening because they had no clue. They were oblivious to the needs of their brothers and sisters. Paul wrote that some of those rich people were sick and some had died because of this sin. This is happening to New Covenant believers. We might ask, well, were those who died saved? I have no clue. But if they were, they were severely chastened for their sin, no doubt, so that others in the church would fear to displease the Lord in such a way. We might think that no saved man or woman would ever do such a thing as that. But we need to examine our hearts and think again. So God help us in our struggle to be honest in our examination so that we don't eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And this brings us to where the rubber really meets the road, to Christian worship. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, verse 24, Jesus is interacting with that woman, that Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And in getting down to brass tacks, he tells her this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is trying to communicate here the essence of worship, the submission that God requires from those who worship him, a bowing down not only of the body in a posture, an appropriate posture, but more importantly and even more urgently, a bowing down of their spirit to him. That's where the real issue lies. He is spirit. We are an embodied spirit. And this is where the, inter the interaction takes place. A bowing down in truth, Jesus says as well, meaning in reality, meaning it really is happening. The spirit of the worshiper is actually bowing down in submission. And of course, part of that Part of worshiping in truth in this way is confessing that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. He is the authority. And so therefore what he says about sin and about sinners and many other things, all things, is true. And that he is the Savior, the only Savior, the only one through whom sinners can escape the wrath of God against them. So submitting to these truths is, is an integral part of the worship of God. 
So the real worship of real worship of real believers is the comprehensive submission to God by the inner man. You could say maybe by the real heart of the real us where the stubborn refusal resides, where the claim to autonomy resides, where the delight in sin resides. That's what must bow. So it's easy to bow our body, easy to perform religious rituals, easy to tithe and to give, easy to do good works, easy to come to church, but to bow our spirit, to bow the inner man and submit to God, to give up our autonomy and the control of our lives, to submit our entire bodies, every member of our body, and pardon me, the private parts along with the public parts, to submit all our plans and our pleasures to God, to submit comprehensively to his brilliantly righteous morality, and to have every single one of our thoughts brought into Captivity to the obedience of Christ? Hmm. I don't know if you're like me, but I have a personal problem here. <laughs> a problem because of my stubborn and stiff-necked carnal nature, which says sometimes says passively and sometimes more actively, I'm not going to submit. I will not submit to that extent. You know what I'm talking about? So how is it that you and I are going to bend our spirit and actually submit to God everything that we are? How are we, we going to subdue and cast down the very thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and refuses to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ? And maybe you're... Right here, you're asking yourself the same question that I ask. How in the world is that kind of submission ever going to happen? And if we're honest with, about what we really are, we have to ask that question. And maybe right here that the cry of that man in Mark 24 just comes out of our mouth. Lord, I believe. Oh, help my unbelief. Lord, I repent. Oh, help my lack of repentance. Lord, I worship you, ah, but help my lack of submission. And where else can we go when we understand this except right to Jesus Christ, the one we worship? And think about this. For us to cry out for help because we see our weakness is in itself a very powerful act of submission. We're going to the one who can help us. Because the truth is, you and I cannot break our sinful pride, but the Holy Spirit can, and he does. This is God meeting us right where we need him the most with the gospel. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, right? The Holy Spirit leads us to repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit continues to lead us to repentance and faith our whole life long. And this is how real worship begins and continues to happen in us. God's Spirit renewing our minds and conforming us to the image of his Son over time. And right here, 
those of us who know the power of God to salvation in the gospel, right here in a very real way, holy emotions well up. A deep and abiding joy. A profound thanksgiving, exalting praise of the triune God who has delivered us from death and darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his light and where we know his love and his life. We know that we're submitting to a good and gracious king. We know it. And so this joyous worship of submission from redeemed sinners arising from thankful hearts does not need music, doesn't need atmosphere, doesn't need emotions, doesn't need warm feelings or religious rituals. Actually, it doesn't. It can be offered to God day or night, anywhere, at any time. But you know, there is something different and very special about gatherings the gatherings and the assembling of God's people together in their local churches. Psalm 22, verse 3 says this, But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's quite a picture, isn't it? The Lord God, holy, sitting in a throne upon the praises of his people. So one commentator writes this, God loves the worship of his people in their homes much, but he loves their worship in his sanctuary even more. A father is glad to see any one of his children and makes him welcome when he visits him. But much more when they all come together. The greatest feast is when they all meet at his house. So God is holy. He's sitting enthroned upon the praises of his people our praises today that arise out of the worship and the glad and willing submission to this good and gracious king that they love. And they, they lift their voices in songs of joy and they praise and exalt in their God who stooped so low and dug them out of the pit and reached up so high and placed them in the heavenly places and sat them with and in his son, Jesus Christ. That same psalm, Psalm 22, verse 22 says this, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. As you may know, Psalm 22 is an expression, a prophetic, prophetic expression of the inner thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And this is one of the things that was in his heart and mind as he looked ahead, even to today, to you and I, meeting together. This was his desire, to meet with his people, with his bride, with his church, with his blood-bought people, to declare the name of the Father to them and to raise, to rise in their midst, to stand up in the Spirit and publicly praise his Father. That's what he wants to do every Sunday when we come together. So I just want to offer a few suggestions in closing. Some things maybe to strive for, to plan for, maybe even to fight for. To make your Sunday more meaningful and to give yourself opportunity to be quietly come before him.
Structure your Sunday morning to create a space of time before you leave and sit down quietly together and examine your hearts. Take time. Pray for the pastor who will bring the good word. Read a passage together and quietly meditate on it. Like this one, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, which tells us why we come to the meeting of the church and what we should do as we come to the meeting of the church. Why do we come? We come because we have and hold on to two precious things. We have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. And we have a high priest over the house of God. And because we have and hold on to those two things, we ought then to come and do four things. We ought to come drawing near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That speaks of preparation beforehand. And we ought to come holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And we ought to come thoroughly considering one another in order to stir up one another to love and good works. And instead of forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, we ought to come ex to exhort one another, and so much the more as we say the day of the Lord approaching. So come to the meeting of the church and worship, and be a giver not a taker. Be someone who builds up, not one who tears down. Come to exhort and edify and encourage and comfort one another with the gospel and in so doing, worship and submit to Jesus Christ and, and thereby showing in an unmistakable way through your love for one another in this way that you really and truly are the disciples of Christ. Come and worship the great king. Please join me in prayer. Father, you have called us again to worship you, to submit to you. And you have, Father, you have opened our hearts and given us hope. And you've placed in our hearts, this spark of faith. And that's all we have to bring to you. Just a simple, believing, obeying trust in you who is a covenant-keeping God. Father, we thank you for your promise of that you will work with us, that you will sanctify us, and one day you will translate us and glorify us, and we will stand the light shining out of us on that great day because your work is done and sin is done in us. And we long for that day. But help us to worship you and help us to submit to you and continue your good work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.